Good morning, Infinity Church. Um, the, uh, the scripture today for the sermon is Lamentations 3, 18 through 26. So I say, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I, ha- I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your steadfast love that never ceases. Father, we want to be counted among those who are willing to wait for you. God, it's easy to rush ahead. At least I'll confess that it's easy for me to rush and be anxious and be um, demanding that you would act in my time frame and according to my plans. And so, Father, we want to be the people who wait upon your steadfast love. Father, you tell us it is good that we should wait quietly to be patient and to be a soul who seeks you. May we be a people who seek you. No matter what busyness or stresses or concerns we may have, we want to be a people who wait for you and trust in you because of your steadfast love. God, we rejoice today over your faithfulness to us. And may we wait patiently for you to act. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I, uh, I'll confess to you, my, my birth year is 1989, which puts me firmly in the middle of the millennial generation which means I have had to uh, endure all the stereotypes and all the accusations that everybody says my generation uh, has. We all, supposedly, as millennials, expect a participation trophy for everything that we do. Just because we showed up, we want a medal. We expect to be paid top dollar for minimal amounts of work. And we probably were late to work and don't want to be anywhere before about 9 a.m. in my generation, so I'm hurt. We have uh, uh, an entitlement problem, I'm told. We, we expect everything to be given to us because we were raised in our, our certain generation. Well, I recently heard a, a characterization about millennials that was new to me. I, I've been working to to disprove all those things that I just said about millennials, except for the participation trophy. I like, I like that. Uh, just kidding. I don't care. But here's a new one about millennials. Uh, the idea isn't new, but the terminology was new to me. Somebody referred to us as Generation Flake. Generation Flake. Meaning that we are the most likely, more likely than the generations before us, to flake out, to cancel some... some appointment or commitment we've made, probably last minute and probably with just a text message, not even a phone call. That's a a stereotype of our generation. 
We are, are, are prone to overcommit ourselves, uh, to think that we can fit more in than we, than we should. That's me. Uh, and then it, when we decide, uh, no matter how much time between now and that commitment, that we decide we don't really want to do it, we come up with any number of excuses. COVID made a, made a great one that we could do for a while. We could blame things on COVID. Uh, anybody that has a sniffle, I'm, really, I'm protecting you by me not coming. That was a good excuse. Tiredness, all kind of thing. When in reality, most of my generation just wants to sit in front of Netflix, you know, and just kind of keep going. Uh, continue watching? Yes. Uh, keep doing that over and over. We cancel plans. I don't know if you know any millennials like that, but so is my generation stereotyped to be. Truth be told, I don't think that's a millennial problem. I think that's a general, all of us uh, are prone to overcommit. And then when time push comes to shove, we find ways to get out of things that we wanted to do. Uh, in 1993, a, guy, a political cartoonist named Bob Mankoff drew a depiction for the New Yorker that's right here. He says on the phone, he says, no, Thursday's out. How about never? Is never good for you? <laughs> and uh, according to the New Yorker, this is one of the most reprinted political cartoons they've ever done. There's something that resonates with a lot of people of saying, I just, I don't, I don't want to commit to anything. I don't want to, I don't want you to nail me down. I don't want to go to appointments. I don't want to go to meetings. Okay, how about never? Is never good? Like that's how, that's how we tend to act. We are, uh, are, are flaky at, at best sometimes. And if it was only funny things like, or, you know, silly things, trivial things like going to a birthday party or missing out on, you know, some kind of social gathering every now and then, it wouldn't be as bad. But that, that temptation, that, that same flakiness shows up in all kinds of important areas of our lives. And we can be on the giving or receiving end of that, and it can be very painful. That flakiness, that willingness to, to go back on a commitment is a very hurtful thing, trait in our, in, our, in our culture. Sometimes that flakiness is deep. Things like somebody who made you a promise for a job or for a career, and then something fell through. You know, there's passive language. We use passive language. I, I couldn't make it because, you know, but, you know, somebody did something and, and the job was dried up or the opportunity was washed. Something changed. Somebody didn't keep a commitment and it cost you big. Or maybe marriage would be one of the most painful and common ways that somebody's backed out of a commitment. And anybody who's had to live through a divorce, either personally or children or parents, anybody, has experienced the pain of backing out of a commitment. Or maybe for you, it was, it was the other way. It was the, the parents. Parents have backed out of a commitment to a child or something like that. Some of our, our deepest wounds can come back to this problem. Somebody made a promise and they didn't keep it. Somebody was unfaithful to a promise. This morning, I want to remind you of the goodness of the Lord our God who is faithful. The Lord our God has never backed out of a commitment that He has made. The Lord is not flaky. He is faithful. This fall, we've been studying God's attributes, taking up the invitation from Isaiah 40 verse 9, Behold your God. And behold, as each week we're beholding different aspects, these all interrelate. They're all different angles describing one and the same God, so they're all interconnected. Last week we talked about God's unchangeable nature, his immutability, that he does not change. And very closely related with that, because he does not change, that means he always keeps his promises, that he is faithful 
to everything he has ever said. Last week was why we're doing the memory verse from this month, Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. So the natural progression is because he has, does not change and will never change, he is always faithful to everything he says. But this week, the reason why I didn't try to combine those into two, two attributes combined into one week last week uh, is because faithfulness uh, tells us about his commitment not just to kind of a, a, a random promise that we may circle through the Bible here and there, but God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And when we see the word covenant in the Bible, it's a story, it's a testament to some, a big picture, big packages of promises that He has made that He has kept from beginning to end. This is, these are the big things that he, is, he has planned and thought about and prepared for us. And so this morning, I want you to see in not just that God doesn't change, but that God is faithfully keeping His covenant. God faithfully keeps His covenant. And that, that word covenant is a critical word in understanding the Bible and understanding how God relates to His people. He has done a lot more than just given us a few token promises here and there. And those are valuable promises. But His covenant, the big picture is what we can rely on and put, uh, that's the rock beneath our feet. God is faithful in His character and He keeps His covenant. We read Lamentations 3, 23 just now. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Hey, Dan, can I ask a favor? We're all shivering. <laughs> Would you mind bumping that? I'm watching, I'm watching lots of corners shiver, and uh, it's just not as hot outside, so I think our air conditioning. Sorry to stop that, but I just, my hands are cold too. All right, I'm going to keep going. Psalm 36.5 pictures God's faithfulness as someone, something we could, we could place before you and then try to see how big God is. Listen to Psalm 36.5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. So it's like standing, standing before trying to, trying to picture where, where God's faithfulness, where does it start and stop? And it's like the psalmist just goes, well, if I put God's faithfulness starting there and just went up, it would, it would just kind of keep going. <laughs> it just would never, you'd never run out of it. It goes all the way to the clouds. His faithfulness goes all the way to the clouds. Maybe similar to we, we say things like, I love you to the moon and back. I don't know really what that means. We're trying to say, I love you a whole lot, but just use better language. The steadfast love of the Lord extends to the heavens. How do we know that? He has proved it time and time again. He has done it in countless ways, but the most significant way, I want to, I want to walk you through God's covenant-keeping nature. The story of Scripture is that God has made promises and kept them and will continue to keep them. In Deuteronomy 7, uh, verse 9, it says this, Know therefore that the Lord your God, your, the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. So this is His nature. He makes a promise and He keeps it. He makes a promise and He keeps it. That is the nature of God. And you can see that from the first page of the Bible to the last page of the Bible. So that's exactly what I want, you, want to do for you. Let's walk through briefly from the first page to the last page to see God's covenant-keeping Nature. In Genesis chapter 2, it says the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. 
So here's a physical place. And we even get the rivers in verse 14, the Tigris and the Euphrates, a couple others. So this is in the Middle East somewhere. God put, put man and then woman. He put them together in the garden in a physical place. And this land had a very specific purpose. This was a place for Adam and Eve to enjoy the presence of God. How, how do we know that? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, apparently the habit had been that the Lord was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So this beautiful garden, a physical, tangible place, a real place, not just a, a fairy tale, a physical place somewhere in the Middle East, and God at it walked. We don't know what that looked like. Did he have a body? I don't know. But this was God walking with Adam and Eve. They had the presence of God. They were enjoying his favor, enjoying being with him. And that's how it was intended to be. God made heaven on earth. God has, for all of eternity, we, I keep talking about this every week, but Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect relationship, perfect love. And he overflowed in that and created the world. There's a physical place on earth where there's heaven on earth. That was the Garden of Eden. How do you know it was heaven? It was walking with God. That's the first page of the Bible, right? And then we messed it up. We broke it. Not God did. We broke it. Shortly thereafter, Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and there were consequences for that sin. They deserved to be separated. They deserved to be removed from heaven on earth, to be exiled, to be kicked out of that place. And so they were. They were sent into an, into an exile. There were these swords blocking. You cannot come back into heaven on earth, they said. You, God told him, you, you got to go out. you got to leave this place. But you know what the mystery and amazing grace of our God is right after that? The very next verse, Genesis chapter 4, Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Whoa, wait, wait. They just got kicked out of heaven on earth. I thought God was in Eden. They left Eden. And then here they are, in exile, away from it, and God's still helping them. You see, God, because of our sin, we deserve to be kicked out. And God went into exile with His people. Because He has made a promise. You are, you're my child, Adam. You're my child, Eve. You're created in my image. And though there are consequences for your sin, I'm not going to leave you. They didn't know that yet, but they were learning it. That's God helping in Adam and Eve, even as they were unfaithful, God continued to be faithful. A few years ago, uh, Aaron drew my attention to 2 Timothy 3.13, a verse that's meant a lot to him, and I've since circled it in all my Bibles and keep coming back to it. It says this, If we are faithless, He remains faithful. You want to summarize the covenants of the Bible, the entire story of the Bible, in just a few words? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven words. Now that works out. Perfection. Here we go. If we are faithless, He remains faithful faithful. After Adam and Eve had, uh, after Adam, God extended that covenant to the next generations. We get to a man named Noah and his family. God used the first time he used the word covenant is to Noah. But then generations later, God extended that covenant to a man named Abram who would become Abraham. And part of the promise that God made to Abraham was this, Genesis 15, 7. He said, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur, the Chaldeans, to give you this land to give you a physical, tangible place on earth. Why, why did he need property? What was he doing? Two chapters later, Genesis 17, 8, I will give you, in, I will give, uh, you uh, and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, 
for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Do you hear what's happening here? He's recreating Eden. It's in a different location. We don't know exactly where Eden was. You know exactly, but, but here's the idea. God is going to dwell with His people. Heaven on earth is God dwelling with His people. A physical, tangible place where God's people get to walk with Him. Here it is again. He's recreating. He's keeping His promise. He's remaking the same promise that He made on the first page of the Bible, now 15, 17 chapters in. And in Abraham's case, God went one step further when God made this covenant with a very seemingly odd way of telling them how important this covenant was. In Genesis 15, God tells Abraham to do something kind of weird. He says, take this whole series of animals, cut them in half, and lay them on either side. Right? That seems weird. Right? Here's these, all these animals cut in half, one on each side. In ancient times, the way they would do this, they would do this as a sign, a, a declaration of the covenant, and they would say, when, when we, we're going to, together, me and you, we're going to make this promise, we're going to make this covenant, and now we're going to walk in between these animals, one on either side. And what we're saying is, if either one of us doesn't keep our end of this covenant, our end of this promise, may it be done to us like the animals. May we be split in half. May we die because we didn't keep our promise. So Abraham probably knew about this and understood what was going on. So he cuts the animals, lays them beside them. But then you know what happens? God causes a, a sleep to come over Abraham. Abraham doesn't walk through the animals. Instead, we read that there is a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch that goes through the animals. That represented the presence of God. God said this covenant of me making a place, a physical, tangible place where I will walk with you. I am so committed to that promise. Abraham, your life's not even on the line. Mine is. That's the promise that God made to Abraham. This was his covenant. If the covenant is broken, God says, let the punishment fall on me. That's what God said in Genesis 15. God continued to reiterate these promises to Abraham's descendants, Isaac and Jacob. And there was at one point a time where the people had to leave the land, the, 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 the heaven on earth where they were dwelling with God. They had to leave it because there was famine in the land. God had already gone before His people, sending Joseph to Egypt to go and prepare a way. And so God's people come to a new land into Egypt to dwell with their family. But things did not go well there. A short, short while later, just a generation later, the Egyptians uh, enslaved the Israelites. And they enslaved them for 400 years. We uh, don't make it 400 years <laughs> And think, oh yeah, things are just hunky-dory. We'll just keep waiting. 400 years is a long time. But we worship a God who has a very different time span than us. But for 400 years, God's people had to wonder, what about the promise? What about what you told Abraham? What about what you told Isaac and Jacob? What about heaven on earth? What about us being your people and you being our God? Where are you, God? 400 years after they had been there, God tells a man named Moses in Exodus chapter 6, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God has not forgotten His promise just because 400 years have passed. God did not somehow slip his mind or 
forgot what he had told the people. He remembered his promise. And so once again, he tells Moses, who then tells all the Israelites, God is going to make heaven on earth, a physical, tangible place where we can dwell with God. Once again, God is promising to recreate Eden, and that becomes known as the promised land, the promised land. God was going to pull his people out of Egypt and go to the promised land. He's remaking it and preparing it for us. And just as God had in Abraham's day sent a, a smoking fire pot and flaming uh, torch through the middle of those animals to represent his presence, God doesn't even wait for them to get to the promised land to remind them of his presence. When Moses and the Israelites come out of Egypt, do you know what leads them? There is a pillar of smoke by day and fire by night, even in exile, even in transit. God is with his people. He continues to show them, I am your God and you are my people. And they hadn't even got to the land yet. They're not even in heaven on earth yet. They're still on the way. And God says, I am faithful to you even here and now. Eventually, Joshua took over leadership and God brought them into the land. And for a few moments, it looked like they were finally going to be able to enjoy heaven on earth. Once again, Eden was going to be recreated. And then we messed it up again. A lot of times over and over again. The judges' cycle is people over and over sinning against a faithful God. And God raised up a new kind of leader. By the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we've gotten to know a man named David. And once again, God reiterates his covenant, his promises to his people. He reminds them in verse 10 that he will appoint a place he says this to uh, this is what God says to David. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they may dwell in their own place. There it is, a land. Once again, he's given them a physical, tangible place. And what's the purpose of the place? It's that they may be the people of God and God may be their God. He says in verse 15, my steadfast love. He promises before that, that there will be a, a descendant of David to sit on the throne forever. And he says, my steadfast Fast love will not depart from him. Your kingdom shall be made sure forever and your throne shall be established forever. There it is, an unmistakable promise of his faithfulness. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell with you and you will reign forever. When David's son Solomon became king and he built the temple, Solomon had to step back and say, look at God's faithfulness. Though we are faithless, he remains Faithful. Solomon worded it this way. This is the, the prayer that he prayed, dedicating the temple. He starts, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand you fulfilled it. Solomon praises God. The things you said... You did it. You are faithful. God has made an unbreakable promise, a covenant. And he says, I will keep my promises. How unbreakable is this covenant? If God's people had not tested it enough already, they really put it to the test after David and Solomon. The prophet Jeremiah wrote during one of the most difficult times in Israel's history. God's people had rebelled against him again for hundreds of years, and God, in his incredible patience, had not brought the judgment on them they deserved. 
But God told his people, I will discipline you. And so he allows foreign pagan nations to come into this heaven on earth, the promised land. This sacred place, this sacred temple where God was dwelling with his people, where he was their God and they were his people. And he allows those pagan people to come and occupy heaven on earth, occupy the promised land. And people are sent into exile, sent into foreign lands, sent into pagan territory. And God goes with them. He doesn't leave them, even in exile. God didn't walk, uh, God remind, the people had to start wondering, did God, didn't God walk through those pieces with Abraham? Didn't God say his life was on the line? Why are we here in Babylon? Isn't God going to keep his covenant? Jeremiah describes there, there was a way you could mess up the covenant. Here's, here's how you can mess it up. We could stop. Here's, here's, if you're going to stop God from keeping His promises, this is how you do it. This is, I'm going to read you the second half, which tells you, here's how you, it tells you about breaking it. He says, Jeremiah 33, 21, Then also, so after the thing he says, he says, Then also my covenant with David my servant may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. He said, here, this is going to happen. If you do this, it's going to break my covenant that I made with David. So what did he say right before that? Was there, was there a way to break that promise? He says, here's how you do it. Verse 20. So one before that. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night will not come at their appointed times, then also my covenant with David, my servant, shall be broken. So here's all you got to do to stop God from keeping his promises. Stop the sun from rising. That's what Jeremiah, in the middle of exile, while the people are scattered abroad, suffering, he says, God is faithful. There is no amount of suffering, no amount of turmoil, no amount of, of whatever we go through that could get us to a point where we could say, now this has proven God doesn't keep his promises. If you can stop the sun from rising, you can stop God from keeping his covenant. And neither of those are going to happen. God keeps his covenant. This is how committed He is. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. God was bringing His people through a time of discipline that He may prepare them once more. They come back to the land. They come back to the promised land and once again wait on Him to fulfill His promises. And He did it in a physical, tangible way like no other. God sent not just a prophet, a priest, or a king, but God sent His own Son, Jesus. The Son of God who is fully God, who dwelled in heaven with His heavenly Father from eternity past. And of all the places, all, everything that had been going on on earth was about bringing heaven to earth, right? That's what the, the, the Garden of Eden is. It was heaven on earth. The temple was meant to represent heaven on earth. The promised land was heaven on earth. This is God dwelling with His people. But Jesus didn't need a heaven on earth. He had heaven. He was already there. And he went into exile. He left heaven. He was with his people even away. He went to us. He came to us. He left perfection to come and to be with us. He wanted to walk with his people once more in the cool of the day. So he brought heaven to earth. And what did Jesus do after leaving heaven and earth? He went into exile even more. He was crucified outside the city gates. He went into the most, the, the, the most extreme of exiles. He went into the grave. There is no 
greater exile than death itself, a separation from God, a separation from the way life was intended to be lived, the heaven on earth that we get to enjoy in the presence of God. Jesus went beyond that. He went to the grave. He went to exile. And if there was ever a moment where it looked like God was breaking His promise, it's when the Son of God is on the cross shouting out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where's God's faithfulness now? Where's this God who has promised to keep His covenant? Where's the God who's promised to never forsake His children? His own Son is on the cross. Jesus goes into the grave. And on the third day, He rose. And you know what He did? He proved that Jesus on the cross was not God forsaking His covenant. It was Jesus keeping the covenant. Because God had told Abraham, if the covenant gets broken, let the curse fall on me. Because Jesus is fully God, this was God Himself keeping a promise He made thousands of years before. I will not let my covenant be broken. I will be faithful to my people if and when it costs my life. That's what God was telling us. And he went, Jesus went into exile, into the grave, so that He could bring you and me back into the presence of God. Before Jesus ascended back to heaven with his Father, you know what he told his disciples? He said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. You and I, by the power of the Spirit sent to us, can live in heaven on earth. You know why? Because the Spirit of God is in us and among us. We get to have Eden here, not in full. There is brokenness for sure. But we get to walk with God in the cool of the day. That is heaven on earth. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're asking God to make it more and more like Eden, which means I want to walk with you more and more. I want to experience you. I want to see you. I want to see your faithfulness here and now. Jesus accomplished that. He kept his promises. God is faithful. He is faithful to His covenant. And in the end, the very end of time, God is going to keep keeping His promises. Revelation 21.3 says, Behold, uh, so right before that, He talks about how the new heaven and new earth will be made. A physical, tangible place. God is going to recreate it. All the brokenness is going to be gone. And how do you know it's Eden? How do you know it's heaven on earth? Revelation 21.3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be their God. Can you see His faithfulness from the first page of the Bible to the very last? From Genesis to Revelation, here is the promise. I am your God, the Lord says. I will be your God and you will be my people. That is His promise and He is keeping His promises. God is faithful to His people. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. Let me give you just a couple ways. This is really good news to you and me. It is really good news to you and me that when we are tempted to sin, God is not tempted and is still faithful. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation is overtaken. It is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape. Then you can endure it. 
We do not enter into temptation and say, where are you, God? I thought you were helping me. He's there. He is faithful. Not only is God faithful in temptations, He's also faithful in our trials. Revelation, I mean, Revelation, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, those were our, our coffee mug verses for the day. These are the ones you could put on a frame on your wall, right? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Put that on your mirrors. Put that on your, a card in your pocket. Let that pop up on your phone all day. That is good news. God's mercy never ceases. His steadfast love is always there. His mercy is new every day. But do you know why the book is called Lamentations, not Rejoicings? It's because the same prophet I mentioned a minute ago, Jeremiah, is the one writing this praise. And I asked Caleb to start back up a little above that in verse 18 because it helps us remember where is God being celebrated as faithful? Verse 18, he says, My endurance has perished and so has my hope. My hope has perished, meaning I am hopeless. Hopeless. Everything looks terrible. Jerusalem's been destroyed. The temple's been destroyed. Everybody's been scattered. There could not, it could not look any worse. And that's when he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. He remembers the faithfulness of God. Verse 21, before that, he said, this I call to mind. It's not this I saw on the road today. This I was reminded as I was walking by and seeing the sunrise and seeing the children playing in the street and rejoicing over the good things around me. No, no, no. There's nothing good around Jeremiah when he's saying this. This I call to mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. He's reminded of the faithfulness in the hard times, and that's how he endures. God's faithfulness gives you strength to endure the trials and to overcome the temptations. And because God is faithful, you can have assurance for the future. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You know when God's going to give up on you? <laughs> Never. God hasn't given up on His people yet, and He's not starting today. He won't start tomorrow, and He won't start a million years from now. God has been faithful. He is unchanging. He is immutable. His promises are sure, and His covenant lasts forever. Now, there's one unique thing about this attribute I won't spend a long time on right now. But God, so far as we've discussed Him, is not like anybody else, right? We have said there are things about him that are not like, that none of us can be like. He, none of us are triune. None of us are three in one. None of us is infinite. None of us uh, is immutable. All of us change. We all have limits. Those are all part of us. But there are other ways God, call, God in God's nature that he calls us to imitate. Uh, Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. How do we imitate God? We don't imitate God in his being infinite. We can't do that. But when it comes to his attributes like this one, his faithfulness, he says, follow me. Be imitators of me. We are called to be faithful. Imitate our faithful God. Imitate our faithful God. Not in our own strength. You go to Galatians 5.22. One of the fruits of the Spirit, the seventh one, is faithfulness. With God's Spirit in you, you can begin to imitate God. What does faithfulness look like? Well, one of the most common ways we use the word faithful or being somebody that is not faithful as we reference our spouse. Are you faithful in your marriage? Are you faithful not just physically in your marriage, but emotionally? 
Are you there for one another? Are you committed to one another? Are you building a bond of friendship? Are you faithful in your, to your spouse? And the reason that so often the marriage metaphor is used for our relationship to God is that God calls us, even before our marriage, to be faithful to God. The picture of the Old Testament over and over again uh, is, is, a, is an adultery when people practice idolatry, worship something other than God. Are you faithful to your marriage? Are you faithful to God above all else? Are you faithful in all the other responsibilities God has given you? Is your word yes when it's yes? Is your no mean no? Are you faithful in keeping your word? We worship a faithful God, and people who worship a faithful God are transformed by that God to be faithful. We are called to imitate our God all the way up to our very lives. Revelation 2.10, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. For ten days you will have tribulation, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus doesn't promise things will be easy. He promises that he is faithful, and he calls you to faithfulness in response. But if you're like me and you hear that and you say, I have not measured up. God is faithful, yes, and we're trying. <laughs> but we're not. And you know what's amazing? is that God continues to be faithful even in our faithlessness. God faithfully forgives our faithlessness. One more, uh, I'll probably give you a couple more, but another great verse on God's faithfulness. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, do you know this verse? He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. Even your sin doesn't stop the covenant-keeping God from keeping His covenant. Even your sin does not lead God to a place of abandoning you. Even in your sin, God is faithful. And He does that because we have a faithful high priest. Christ Himself has come. He died for us, resurrected, ascended back to the Father, made a pathway. He, he, there was no path before and he made a pathway to God. And he now stands at the right hand of God. Hebrews 2, therefore he, he has made uh, his brothers, made to be, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Jesus is at the right hand of God saying, they're mine, they're mine. All those who believe in him, we have a place in God's family because Jesus is faithful, not because we are. And because we have faith in Him, as He grows in us, the Spirit leads us. We can live in obedience. We can be motivated to obedience so that one day we may stand before God and be in the right, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We can hear, like Matthew 25 says, His Master said to Him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your Master. There are no more beautiful words to hear on the final day than that. May we be a faithful people because we serve a faithful God who faithfully forgives us when we are faithless. Let's pray. Father, thank You for displaying Your covenant-keeping faithfulness to Your people. Father, over and over again, generation after generation, You have proved who You are. God, You made a way time and time again for people to dwell with You and we kept abandoning You. But since you knew that all along, you made a way through Christ that we could once again be your people. God, we pray that we would lay down our faithlessness today, 
that, that we would see the places in our own lives where we are not true to our word, where our, our word doesn't mean anything, where we are turning our back on the, the places you have called us to, to be faithful, to be faithful in our homes, to be faithful in our work, to be faithful with our children, to be obedient to you, to live after your priorities and not our own. God, we, we see all the ways we come short, and we lay that before you and depend upon your faithfulness to forgive us our sins. May your spirit move in us in such a way that we grow to imitate you because we love walking with you, our God. And we're grateful that one day we will stand with you and rejoice over you and celebrate your faithfulness to us. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.